We'll hear argument first this morning in case 10-9646, Miller v. Alabama. Mr. Stevenson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Graham v. Florida, this Court recognized that children are inherently characterized by internal attributes and external circumstances that preclude a finding uh, of a degree of culpability that would make a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole constitutionally permissible under the Court's Eighth Amendment excessiveness analysis. While the issue in Graham involved juveniles that were convicted of non-homicide offenses, these deficits in maturity and judgment and decision-making are not crime-specific. All children uh, are encumbered with the same barriers that this Court has found to be constitutionally relevant before imposition of a sentence of life imprisonment without parole or the death penalty. In fact, in Roper, uh, this Court acknowledged that these differences between children and adults exist even in the cases involving the most aggravated murders. These deficits, these differences, are even more pronounced in young children. Mr. Stevenson, but in Roper, uh, the Court also um, made the point when it ruled out uh, the death penalty, it said, to the extent the juvenile death penalty might have residual deterrent effect, it is worth noting that the punishment of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is itself a severe sanction. So the court in Roper seemed to be uh, anticipating this case and suggesting that that it was all right, it was constitutional. There's no question, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that the, that the default sentence in, in Roper was life imprisonment without parole. Uh, but we actually think that, specifically with regard to that provision, uh, th- there is no greater deterrent effect and these deficits, that, that these problems that uh, children experience, lend themselves to an analysis that is subject when the pun- punishment is life imprisonment without parole, like the death penalty. What about 50 years? Is that, is that too much? What the Court held in, 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 in Graham mean, You know, once, once you, you depart from the principle that we've enunciated that death is different, why is life without parole categorically different from 60 years or 70 years or, you know, yeah. we'll be back here next term with a, with a 60-year Justice Scalia, I I think you're absolutely right that that there is a point at which a a term of your sentence could constitute the same kind of judgment as life imprisonment without parole. But there is a distinction, obviously, between life imprisonment without parole and any other term sentence. Those sentences, in most instances, if the sentence is not too extreme, do permit the possibility of release. And what this Court held in Graham is not that the state forfeits the ability to incarcerate for life. I'll change my, I'll change my question to uh, 50 years without possibility of parole. Uh, in then you have no, no distinction, right? Well, I think there it would be a tough case. I think imposed on a juvenile, a 50-year sentence right. would without not create the meaningful possibility of release that this Court uh, ordered in the Graham context. It would be right on the line, but I think 50 years would actually be uh, on the other side of a meaningful possibility of release. It would be sort of a cynical reaction if this Court were to say we ban life without parole for these kinds of offenders. It would be somewhat problematic to suggest that we're going to get as close to death as possible and then facilitate some kind of review. I think what we're interested in — About 15 years old. 15 
60 years or 14, 70 years? I think all of them. What's the distinction between 14 and 15? Well, I I think from a sentencing perspective, all of those sentences would be problematic. But the distinction between a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old for constitutional purposes is that, of course, the younger you are, the more compelling are these deficits, these, these distinctions that — I understand, but how are, we, how are we to know where to draw those lines? We can't do it on the basis of any historical tradition, certainly. Well, I think The common law left it up to the jury to take account of the, of the youthfulness of the offender. Well, well I they're think — They're all entitled to jury trial, yeah. right, before they're — Well, well, that's true. But, of course, in this case, uh, Justice Scalia, and in the other case, that there was no discretion for the sentencer. Neither the judge nor the jury could give any effect to the age of Evan Miller, who was 14. But I also think that we've identified lots of laws that make these distinctions. We do provide for greater responsibilities. Would that satisfy you if if it were not a mandatory term and it was left to the trier and you could put, put in all the mitigating circumstances? That, that would not satisfy me, Justice Ginsburg, for all the reasons that this Court acknowledged in Graham, um, that, that, that the problem with uh, many of these crimes is that uh, the offense itself can overwhelm all of these mitigating factors, all of these aspects of juvenile uh, decision-making that we think are constitutionally permissible. The other problem is that we still can't make good judgments about whether a child uh, whether these characteristics are transitory or permanent. So you're saying it would be unprincipled for us to say, or at least unsupported, uh, for us to say uh, that the sentence cannot be mandatory, but that in some cases it might s- still be imposed. I, I think it would be principled to, rem- to, to kind of strike down mandatory sentences, but I, I think constitutionally what this Court has recognized in Roper uh, and in Graham uh, that it would be a, a mistake to equate kids with adults. And we don't have the ability to make those judgments, even if we create a different kind of process. You mean you leave if right you off. take that off the table, then you leave us with nothing um, but uh, saying that the sentence is, is never permitted or that it's always permitted. Well, I, I, I don't mean to take it off the table. I just mean to argue, as, as we did previously, that a categorical ban would be consistent with the Court's understanding about child status and development. If you could write the opinion for us, what would you hold? I would hold that uh, uh, children uh, are categorically prohibited from being subjected to sentences. What's, what's the definition of a child for that purpose? Uh, well, we presented data in this case uh, that would exclude a youth 14 and younger. No state that has set a minimum age for life without parole has set it b- beneath the age of 15 other than one. And so we, uh, we would make that holding. I do think it would be So you, you would hold you can't, uh, there cannot be a sentence of life imprisonment without parole for anyone under 15, but for anybody over 15, it would be permissible. No, I would also hold, Your Honor, that uh, a mandatory sentence uh, for that cohort would also be uh, in violation of this Eighth Amendment. Well, you could say we reserve that question for another day. Well, I think that the problem, uh, Justice Ginsburg, is is that uh, these cases with the mandatory sentencing aspects to them uh, create kind of a data issue that this Court has usually relied on to kind of generate an interest. I think right now we know that excluding uh, considerations of age and, and, and character in a sentencing deser- determination of life imprisonment without parole is problematic. The well, court can is- you tell us where the age line needs to be drawn for constitutional purposes? I, I, I would draw it at 18, uh, 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 Justice Alito, uh, and because we've done that previously. We've done that consistently. That's where you think the logic of your argument leads. That, that's exactly right. And you would say that 
a 17 a person of 17 years and 10 months 11 months who commits the worst possible string of offenses still and and demonstrates uh, great maturity uh, still cannot be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole that's right for the same reasons that we made that determination in Graham and that the court made that determination in Roper and I understand that there are some tensions when we draw the sorry I thought you just said a second earlier that you had a bifurcated rule no life without parole whatsoever for 15 and under and no mandatory life for 16 15 and over that would be — I'd have two rules, Justice Sotomayor. My preferred rule would be a categorical ban on all juveniles under the age of 18, and I don't want to retreat from that in any way. All of these deficits, all of these characteristics that we're talking about have been recognized to apply to all youth up until the age of how 18. How do you — how do you write the opinion to do the bifurcated rule? What justifies an absolute ban at a certain age and a modified ban above an age and how do you deal with Harmelin with respect to the second part of your rule? Yeah. It, it, Harmelin says we don't look at individualized sentencing. Yeah. So how do we get rid of the mandatory if that's what we were it, it, It's a challenge, and I, and I concede that. But I, and so I, the first part of my answer would be that I think the easier rule to write would be that there is a categorical ban on all life without parole sentences for all children up until the age of 18. How do I come to that decision? What do I just consult my own uh, preferences on this matter? Well, well, Something like 39 states allow it. I mean, the American people, you know, have decided that that's the rule. They allow it. And the federal government allows it. So I'm supposed to impose my, my judgment on, on the, what seems to be a consensus of the American people? Well, well, at least in this case, you, you, you look to your precedent in Roper and in Graham, which drew that line. Well, that's not going to help me, you know. Well, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand, Justice Scalia. But I don't think you can draw much comfort in the fact that 39 jurisdictions make this theoretically possible. That same number existed in the Graham context. Most of those jurisdictions have not addressed a minimum age for life without parole. In fact — What do you mean when you say that, that they have not addressed it? If so, the state law allows it, have they not addressed it? Um, yes, that is. What the state permits is that mean children — The legislators don't understand that their law permits this? I, I don't think we can read into a, a transfer judgment, which is the only judgment that they've made. They've said that some children of some age can be treated like adults. They haven't talked about what the, what the punishment should be. And the reason why I say that, Justice Alito, is that in many of these states, there's no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. But I, I don't really understand this argument. You mean the legislatures have enacted these laws, but they don't realize that under these laws, a, a person under the age of 18 may be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for, for murder. That, they don't understand that. They, that. they have not considered that or adopted or endorsed it. That, that's argue. difficult because the statistics show there are 2,300 uh, prisoners uh, now under sentence uh, with life without parole. Uh, for juvenile murders and they're all, that were committed under 18, 2,300 nationwide. That, that, that's so, correct. So it's, it's very difficult um, it's, it's, to, to assess your answer to Justice Alito that the, oh, the legislatures don't know about this. Well, in, that, that, that answer, your, that number, Your Honor, is partly rooted in the fact that these sentences are mandatory. There is no one capable, once the court makes a decision to try the child as an adult, to do anything to consider the status of children. And if you Mr. think Stevens, these legislators don't understand what their laws provide, why don't you contact them 
And when they — when you tell them, do you realize that in your state a, a, a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old may be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for murder, they'll say, oh, my gosh, I never realized that. Let's change the law. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't think there are any legislatures that are, that are quick to make their sentences uh, less, more compassionate, more responsive to juvenile, to juvenile crime of any sort. So they but made I'll, a decision on this. Now, maybe it's a bad decision. Yeah. But I, I really don't understand how you can argue that they have not made a decision on this. I, I and think that they the, do, are not aware of what their law provides. I, I think the strength of my argument, Justice Alito, is that the states that have actually considered, discussed, and passed laws setting a minimum age for life without parole have all set that minimum age above 15. That's my primary argument. 13 states have, you, have done it. Uh, all of them except for one have set it at 18. And you think there's a difference between the state that says expressly uh, a, a juvenile below a certain age may be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole, and a state that says that uh, if a person is convicted of capital murder, that sentence may be imposed, and in another sentence, in another provision, says that juveniles may be transferred for prosecution as adults. I, I, There's a difference between those two. I, there, there is, and that's because the. The transfer question, which is what informs whether children can be subject to these sentences or not, is a very different question. It's a question about whether the juvenile system that may mandate release at age 18 or age 21 is adequate for an offender. It's not a judgment that that child should therefore be subject to life imprisonment without parole. And so you have this disconnect. You have transfer judgments, which this Court recognized in Thompson and in Graham were not proxies for sentencing judgments. And because of that, it is a very different calculation. The second point is that if there is no minimum age for trying children as adults or even prosecuting uh, children as adults, I think we have to concede that there is an age at which a life without parole sentence would be constitutionally impermissible for any crime. And to the extent that the State hasn't addressed that, which they clearly haven't, you know, in this cohort of 79 children with life without parole for crimes at 14 and younger, more than half come from states where there's no minimum age for trying children as adults. That means in that state, a 10-year-old child would arguably have been contemplated by the legislature to be an appropriate person for life without parole, or an 8-year-old child and a 6-year-old child. And I think that asks too much Counsel, of these statutes. There, there is no question that you're dealing with a much smaller universe um, of children sentenced to life without parole who are 14 and under. There's an argument that that's because so few of them commit the crimes. But putting that aside, the universe is rather small. Yes, Your Honor. All right. There is a much, much larger group, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, for life without parole for juveniles at 15 and above. Go back to my question. Yes. I need an answer to it. Yeah. Which is assuming um, the bifurcated theory that you proffered, tell me how we get around How would you write that decision? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, what this Court has relied on when it's looked at these numbers, what it's been trying to figure out, are these objective indicia of society's standards, its mores, its decency meter, if you will. And we've looked at these numbers to inform us, are these sentences that are are consistent with evolving standards of decency, are they now beyond a maturing society? And we've always found in these data some measures. In the death penalty context, we've looked at that in the Roper area, in the Atkins area, and we've been able to make some judgments. The reason why we could do it in these death penalty cases is that unlike the cases here, the death penalty determination is discretionary. The sentencer is required to consider and evaluate a range of mitigating circumstances and facts, including age, that help us assess 
whether the determination that death is the appropriate punishment means something in a society still trying to evolve. Here, that's not true. The majority of these sentences are mandatory. So the number tells us less about what the Constitution requires. Mr. Stevenson, do you have statistics about how many of these sentences are imposed in under-18-year-olds in non-mandatory states? Uh, the, the data on the larger uh, population is not as precise, Justice Kagan, as it is with our younger uh, 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 population. But the majority of states are mandatory states. And the estimates are about that 85 percent of those sentences are mandatory sentences. Certainly the states that have the largest populations, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, these states uh, have mandatory regimes. So you think it would be true going up to age 18 that 80-plus percent are imposed in states that have mandatory systems? That's correct. And, in fact, the overwhelming majority of those sentences come from a handful of states uh, where there is very little discretion to impose a sentence other than uh, life imprisonment without parole. And because of that feature, I don't think, uh, Justice Sotomayor, that the, that the, the reliance on the number is quite as powerful here as it has been in the death penalty context, where that number represented a very communal judgment with a lot of factors. It wasn't a majority in theory in Harmelin, and but at least three justices spoke about a gross disproportionality. Is it your views that like a mandatory life without parole for someone like a juvenile is grossly disproportionate? It, it, it is, for the very reasons that uh, the Court articulates in both Roper and Graham. Uh, We're not arguing that life without parole is disproportionate to the crime of aggravated murder. Mm -hmm. We are arguing that the status of children, with all of the deficits that childhood status creates, makes that kind of judgment cruel. If we can focus on the mandatory aspect of the case, I I know you'd prefer a more general rule. Um, It may be that we have to have your general rule. I'm, I'm not sure. If I'm the trial judge, and I have to determine whether or not I'm going to give life without parole, and it's discretionary. What, what do I look at? Are, can I get social scientists to come in and tell me what the chances of rehabilitation are? Are, are, there, are there statistics? Now, we have some quite compelling stories of rehabilitation in this case. I don't know if they're uh, isolated. I don't know where they are in the statistical universe of how often rehabilitation is, is demonstrated and is real. What, what do I look at? What, what is, what's the judge supposed to do? Well, I think one of the problems, Your Honor, with, with trying to make these judgments is that, that even psychologists say that we can't make good long-term judgments about the rehabilitation and, and transitory character of these young people. That's the reason why in Graham this Court didn't permit that kind of discretion. We know that — I thought that modern penology has abandoned that rehabilitation thing, and they they no longer call prisons reformatories or or whatever. And and punishment is the — is the criterion now, deserved punishment for crime. Well — Now, if that's the criterion, is everything that you say uh, uh, irrelevant? Let's assume I don't believe in rehabilitation, as I think sentencing authorities nowadays do not, both at the federal and the state levels. It's been made clear. Well, no, I think it would still be relevant, uh, Justice Scalia, but but I I also don't think that correctional facilities have identified themselves as having no role to play 
and the rehabilitative process. I mean, one of the problems with this sentence of life imprisonment without parole is that it actually bans and shields this population from a whole range of services that are specifically designed to rehabilitate education services, treatment services, anger management programs. All of these programs exist within prisons, including the federal prisons, because we do care how people perform when they're released. And so corrections is still very much the heart and soul of what we do. But even if it wasn't, punishment nonetheless has to be proportionate and recognize that it can be excessive. And what this Court has said is that when you're looking at children, to equate the failings of a child and an adult would be cruel. It would be unfair to, to, given our knowledge and understanding of what developmental science has taught us and what we know about kids. Well, again, it seems you're just forcing us into um, a a bipolar position. We're either going to uh, say that you can't prevail at all or that everyone under 18 uh, cannot get life without parole. I I, I don't see this middle course, which you seem to have abandoned, and you can't tell me how a judge would apply it if we we — chose not to abandon Well, I, I, I don't intend to abandon it, uh, Justice Kennedy. I mean, obviously, I'm arguing for this categorical ban, but I think the Court could obviously do something else. We think that there is a basis for concluding unquestionably uh, that a child under the age of 15 should not be exposed to life without parole based on this Court's precedents and on the data that's presented. The Court could set a categorical line there and at the same time uh, make a determination that subjecting any child Uh, under the age of 18 to life without parole, where there is no ability to consider age, is fundamentally at odds with what this Court has now constitutionally recognized in both Roper and Graham. Mr. Stevenson, may I ask you a a question specifically about the Miller case? There were two boys involved in this horrendous crime. The older one took a plea and got life with parole. Was a plea offered to Miller? No plea was offered uh, to Miller. Uh, What tends to happen, and there was some evidence of this uh, that that was developed earlier, is that the question was who was going to give a statement first, uh, who was the most cooperative, whose lawyer is most effective at accomplishing that. Um, There were some complaints. There's a post-conviction pending now that makes some allegations about what the lawyer didn't do to facilitate a plea. Uh, But no, there was no offer of of life with parole uh, made to Evan Miller. And one of the difficulties, of course, in these cases is that, you know, the younger you are, uh, the more vulnerable you are, the less experienced you are, the less capable you are of managing these dynamics in the criminal justice system that sometimes can be very outcome determinative. Any idea um, uh, how many juveniles uh, subject to a sentence of life without parole uh, do plead to a lesser uh, sentence? Well, um, it, no, it's very hard to determine, mostly because states don't keep data right. on the age. Is there any reason, just I realize it's speculation, but wouldn't you think uh, prosecutors uh, would view that as a particularly attractive offer to someone uh, who's young uh, in the sense that they may regard the sentence as extraordinary uh, themselves, uh, that it may be particularly attractive to someone who's young in a way that it wouldn't be a 40-year-old, an offer of 25 years may not be as attractive as it is to a 15-year-old? Well, they might. And I I would concede, Your Honor, that this population is kind of less equipped to make determinations about whether to take a plea or whether to not take a plea uh, than an adult. It might be also a basis for — to question the statistics you put forward about how often uh, this sentence is actually imposed. In other words, the evolving standards of decency — uh, you suggest uh, 
the prosecutors in the state may not be immune to that evolution either. They, they, they may not be, Your Honor, but we haven't found sort of, at least in this population, any evidence that they are capable of protecting children who we believe at least should be protected. And one of the interesting things, at least looking at this cohort of 79, a great number of them have older co-defendants. Both of the kids in the cases before the Court today have older co-defendants who got sentences that were less than life without parole. Uh, in the Control Jackson case — Well, but those statistics aren't very helpful because we have no idea in the particular cases as to whether or not perhaps the older offender was less, in, less guilty than, than the — 16, 17, 15-year-old. That's right, although in some of these cases, actually, when you read the opinions, you do see the evidence of the shooter not getting the life without parole sentence and the the accompanies getting it. And I I guess my point would be is that — yes, it did. Yes, it did. And and, and my point would be that just this younger population is going to be disadvantaged in managing this aspect of the process. Uh, that I think is quite important when the Court is trying to consider whether there should be a categorical ban uh, or something less than a categorical ban. And, 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 Justice Kennedy, I don't mean to suggest that the Court cannot, uh, consistent with its precedents, uh, make a categorical ban under 17, but I also don't mean to suggest uh, that if the Court can't do that, that there aren't ways of reconciling this, the precedents, drawing a line at 15 and striking down mandatory life without parole. I would urge, for the reasons that we've uh, stated, uh, that uh, in these circumstances, it's better to have a sentence uh, where you can make a judgment about rehabilitation and public safety later in life. We're not arguing that the state has to give away the authority to incarcerate someone even for the rest of their life, life without parole, which is available in this state, Alabama, which facilitate that, but create the meaningful possibility of release that this Court has ordered to be constitutionally necessary uh, in Graham versus Florida. I see my white light is on. I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Mr. Stevenson. Mr. Neiman. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Imposing life without parole sentences on aggravated murder offenders like Evan Miller is in line with the national consensus, is morally justified, and is consistent with legitimate penological goals. I'd like to touch on all three of those points at some juncture today, if I can, but I'd like to start, if I can, with the conversation Mr. Stevenson was having with a few of the justices about the national consensus issue in this case, and more particularly, what we can infer about the judgment of legislatures and ultimately the people based on the statutes we have in this case and the very different set of circumstances we're looking at here than the circumstances the Court was looking at in Graham. Uh, Exhibit A on that front is the fact that uh, out of the 39 states uh, or jurisdictions that allow this sentence, as Mr. Stevens has indicated, or Mr. Stevenson has indicated, uh, a good chunk of them, 27 in all, make the sentence uh, the minimum sentence under the statute. Uh, that's an important fact, uh, both because it tells us a little bit about uh, the retributive goals that the legislatures were trying to achieve through these statutes, but it's also life without parole is the minimum. Life without parole is the minimum sentence for anyone who commits an aggravated murder, or at least certain kinds of aggravated murders, in 27 of those jurisdictions. But that's also the maximum, because there can be no death penalty. Uh, For a juvenile, yes, Justice Kennedy, that's correct. Uh, And effectively, the message that the legislatures are sending is that with respect to aggravated murders, the worst of the worst kinds of murders, uh, there are effectively two sentences. Uh, There's either the death penalty, uh, but or if there's some sort of mitigating circumstance, uh, the person is at least going to serve life without parole. In order to- uh, of the numbers, 
the 79 to 82, I guess there's some disagreement whether it's 82 or 79. Regardless, in your opinion, or maybe it's in the briefs, I, I just can't remember it, of those, say, 79, uh, how many uh, are there for reasons of mandatory sentence where they would not, no one could consider the individualized nature of the crime or the criminal? We don't have precise statistics, or I should well, say, what's I, your I, estimate? I can't vouch to the statistics on that. That's all right. What's your estimate? My, my answer is I don't know uh, in terms of uh, how many are mandatory and how many are not. Mr. Well, how many come from the states that have this mandatory system? That shouldn't be too hard to find out. Well, overall, Mr. Stevenson cited about eight who were sentenced pursuant to non-mandatory schemes of the 70 Non-mandatory. So, Correct. So you think it's, it's almost — it's probably 90 percent. According to Mr. Stevenson's statistics, it's about 90 percent of the cohort that uh, comes and from — And that's 90 — or I'd say it's about 70 or 71. And I remember reading a statistic somewhere where they managed to count up the number of possibilities, i.e., serious murders committed by those under 15 over 50 years or some, some long number of years, and it was uh, somewhere in the 70,000s, was it, or 20,000s? What was it? Your Honor, the statistics I, I have seen that Mr. Stevenson what? cited in his reply brief had 7,500 uh, 7, as the number of arrests of oh. persons under the age of 15 for committing homicide or non-negligent that manslaughter. Sounds more, that sounds more reasonable. Uh, uh, but that's about 1 percent. Uh, if, One percent, if I carry that number around in my mind, that, that, that one percent of those who might uh, have uh, obtained this terrible penalty, uh, one percent are actually given it. Uh, Your Honor, as Graham indicated, that denominator is crucial, but the 7,500 number cannot be the appropriate do- denominator for determining whether actual sentencing practices indicate a national consensus against this practice. The reason why is because that that 7,500 number is not the number of convictions. It's not the number of opportunities Mm. that judges have had to impose this sentence. It is the number of arrests, uh, and it's the number of arrests over the course of 40 years in every jurisdiction, including those that don't impose life without parole at all. I see. All right. Counsel. It's not even for uh, homicide offenses that would qualify for life imprisonment without parole for an adult. It's for any non-negligent homicide. Isn't that right? That's correct, Justice Alito. And the real denominator here, the one the Court ought to look at when it considers the role that actual sentencing practices play in the analysis, ought to be uh, the number of aggravated murder convictions. All right. Well, what is the justification you're going to get to this, I guess? So I'll — but I want to be sure you do at some point. Uh, And I'm not certain it's a — it's a uh, a cruel and unusual punishment argument. It may be more of a due process argument. But I want to know the justification, given all those statistics that you've seen and that was in Roper and so forth. Procedurally speaking, what is the justification for not giving the defendant any opportunity to point to mitigating features in his lack of development, in his age, in his upbringing, etc.? That, to me, is a difficult question. But before we get to that topic, I don't want to — Actually, I do want to ask, and it dovetails with what Justice Breyer is asking. The Edmund Tyson line for adults, which is we can't execute someone who hasn't killed, intended to kill, or was reckless in killing. Um, This is a question more in the Jackson case, because I think it's an issue there. But although all murder is heinous and regrettable, there are different kinds of murder. That's why some people are subject to the death penalty and others are not. 
And I do see a world of difference between the Miller killing and the Jackson killing vis-a-vis the individual defendant's personal liability. So assuming there are different kinds of, of killings, of murder, um, should we be looking at the Edmund Tyson line at all? Should we be talking about its application to juveniles in a different way? I mean, Edmund Tyson, basically okay felony murder if you know that there's a gun involved. But should that line be the same for juveniles? Um, and if so, then how do you go back to justifying, as Justice Breyer spoke about, um, the mandatory nature of life imprisonment without parole, given that not every juvenile is equal and not every murder is equal with respect to them? Justice Sotomayor, the clearest line the Court could draw on this front would be the line that the Court initially set out in Graham as between homicide and non-homicide offenses. Perhaps there would be some question about whether an Inman-type felony murder counts as a, a homicide offense or not. But I, I, my suggestion is that it would, at least if the Court's looking for a clear line uh, that uh, wouldn't uh, undermine too much of what the Court set out in Graham in terms of uh, clearly distinguishing between homicide and non-homicide offenders. Nonetheless, I certainly agree that there are fundamental differences between certain kinds of murders, and I think that judgment is reflected in the legislation we have uh, in at least 27 of these states where aggravated murder, in the very, in the very least, uh, carries with it a, a life without parole sentence for any defendant, regardless of uh, the mitigating that's circumstances. That's not an individual legislative determination. That's, that's just a it is a it is a legislative determination that uh, aggravated murder as a class of offenses is so contrary to society's values and so contrary to the the dignity that we uh, assume that every victim ought to be uh, afforded uh, that life without parole is the appropriate sentence so i think there is a there is an inference to be made there about the legislative judgment particularly because the sentence is a minimum one the three justice concurrence you mentioned justice sotomayor from Harmelin makes this point quite vividly. Uh, in Solemn versus Helm, the Court had struck down uh, a sentence under the gross disproportionality analysis, and the Harmelin concurrence indicated that the Court was a little more comfortable doing that because the sentence in that case was above the minimum uh, and thus did not reflect the judgment of the legislature. But when we're talking about the minimum sentence, it's fair to infer that that's the sentence that the legislature thought as a class, in terms of a class of offenses, uh, th- that would be the, the minimum appropriate sentence for that particular crime. Now, Justice Pryor. When you, I, it's a little confusing to me, but when you refer to minimum, I assume that was because the statutes prior to uh, Graham had uh, death as one of the other options, that that is no longer an option. So it, it's a little awkward to refer to it as minimum when it's also the maximum. Well, that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. When you have — when an individual is prosecuted for an aggravated murder that carries this sentence, is it typical to also charge lesser-included offenses? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. And, and, and in general, what is the distinction between uh, uh, exposure to the, the maximum crime and a lesser-included crime? In other words, what is the difference between — aggravated murder, manslaughter. It typically turns on the state of mind, doesn't it? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. So is there any reason to think that juries in a case where they have the option for lesser-included offenses might be concerned in light of the age of the defendant about whether or not the requisite intent was formed? 
It seems to me that some of the issues that we've suggested uh, justify a different treatment of juveniles have to do with mental development. And those same issues would be taken into account by a jury in considering which of a a list of offenses the uh, juvenile should be convicted of. Mr. Chief Justice, it's certainly within the realm of reason and possibility for was it was it a factor in Miller's case? Was there a lesser lesser offense that was charged? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. There were uh, lesser included charges of at least felony murder, uh, which has a very different intent uh, type element to it. But Miller, at least with respect to the charge on uh, capital murder committed in the course of arson, which is an intentional murder, uh, was found guilty. But by he, the jury on he, that charge. He was the, the, it was also a felony murder charge in, in the Miller case? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. There, there were two felony murder charges, uh, one as to the robbery uh, in the case and one as to uh, the arson in the case. So, so it, it, it may not be realistic to uh, speak of mandatory life without parole. It's only mandatory if the youth is convicted of the highest charge brought, but it remains within the power of the jury in light of the youth to convict him of a, of a lesser offense, which would not produce mandatory life imprisonment without parole. I suppose that's so, uh, Justice Scalia. But, but Are juries instructed uh, that life without parole is a necessary consequence of their decision? I, I suppose the defense attorney could argue it. Justice Kennedy, actually, I think you're right to the extent you're suggesting that juries probably don't aren't actually instructed on that point. And, in fact, it would probably be reversible error, I suppose, I think so. for a jury to, to be instructed on that point. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the judgment that legislatures have reached in terms of setting life without parole as the floor for uh, any murderer is one that was re- that's reasonable and justified. Mr. Neiman, I'm wondering if we can go back to the issue that Justice Breyer left on the table. And this doesn't have much to do with how many states do what. Um, uh, but instead, just to say that in the death penalty context, we've insisted on individualized sentencing. And in Graham, of course, we equated uh, juveniles who were sentenced to life without parole to people who, to adults who were sentenced to death, and said that those two should be treated equivalently. And I'm wondering whether that doesn't suggest that the rules we have in the death penalty context about individualized sentencing ought to apply to juveniles who are sentenced to life without parole. Regardless of, like, how many states do what and how many times this happened. But just, you know, two facts. We've insisted on this in the death penalty context, and we've equated the death penalty context to juveniles without life parole uh, in Graham. Justice Kagan, the answer on that front, I think, is that Harmelin uh, effectively sets a bright line here such that individualized sentencing is only required in, the, in, a, in a death penalty case. And yes, but of course, so. Harmelin is pre-Gram, and in Gram we equated these two things, adults sentenced to death and juveniles sentenced to life without parole. Well, the reason why Harmelin drew that line, and I guess more to the point, the reason why Woodson versus North Carolina and Lockett versus Ohio held that individualized sentencing was required in the death penalty context was not because the sentence happened to be the highest sentence that someone could receive, but because the sentence was death. Uh, and and in Graham, didn't the Court reject the idea of individualized sentencing in which youth would be taken into account on a case-by-case basis? Uh, that's correct, Justice Alito. The states were here jumping up and down asking for that precise result, and we did not get it. Uh, and the reason why, the result the Court thought was appropriate was rather than allowing 
uh, the defendant to argue for mitigating circumstances and for the State to respond with aggravating circumstances in one of this, these cases, uh, the answer was for the juvenile to get a mitigation trump card. Uh, and in one of these sentencing proceedings, the juvenile would be able to say, I'm a juvenile, and uh, that means that I don't get the highest sentence I otherwise would get. I, I win the sentencing phase as, as a matter of law. But the fact that we said that individualized sentencing was not enough in one context does not suggest that individualized sentencing ought not to be the rule in a different context where there is no categorical bar. Uh, Justice Kagan, uh, uh, the response on that front, I I think, is that uh, the rule from Woodson and Lockett requiring individualized sentencing was one that's uh, specifically tailored to the unique aspects of the death penalty, uh, aspects that remain unique notwithstanding uh, Graham and the rule it imposed with respect uh, to juveniles. Uh, But also, Woodson and Lockett, uh, although I've realized that the premise of your question is that we should not look at what other states are doing. The premise of Woodson and Lockett was that uh, states had widely rejected mandatory death penalty sentencing. And we know from the legislative record here that states have done quite the contrary when it comes to mandatory life without parole. So, so is that — I have — I understand their arguments both sides. I think I've pretty much got the arguments on the, the question of the individualized sentencing. You can make an argument that it should be individualized, life without parole, up to age 18, uh, say 7 through 17. And there's an argument the other way, which you're making. Okay. What I want to know is your argument the opposite way on this one. What's the minimum age, in your opinion, or is there any constitutional minimum at all, in respect to which you could give for a murder a child life without parole? I mean, you could have an instance a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old. I mean — is it totally up to the states, or is there a minimum? And, and if there is a minimum, what is it, in your opinion? Yes, Justice Breyer, I think there is a minimum now. What is it? it I, I would be hesitant to commit to a minimum. Without, well, do your best. Further factual do your best. Development. What, do you want it to would, say 12? Do you want to depend- say 10? Do you want to say 9? Because as soon as whatever you say, I'm going to say, and why not 14? Okay. Well, I <laughs> — I will say, uh, I, I would argue, uh, if, if I were the state up here uh, trying to defend a, a 12-year-old sentence, I would argue that that was the line. So a 12 uh, — uh, uh, well, no, well, yes. T- so, see, someone, you see the difficulty. All right. So now put yourself in my position. Gee, because gee, was, my I, position. You know, I was be- beginning to agree with you uh, about this case because I thought you were appealing to what the American people think about the line. Or maybe to the common law. Now, the common law had a, had a rule of, uh, of the age of reason, I think, below 12. You couldn't uh, — at least you couldn't impose the death penalty. Maybe you couldn't even convict for a felony. But you just pluck, pluck some number out of the air. Why can't no, I pluck no, a no. number out of the air I, I, if you pluck one out of the air? Justice Scalia, I was about to give Justice Breyer uh, the arguments that I would make if I were the state in those circumstances about why that's the line. Uh, well, reason number one, to, national if, consensus. If we look to objective indicia — as all of the cases in this line have, <clears throat> what is the lowest age as to which you can say there is uh, any indication of a societal consensus that this is okay? Wouldn't it be 14? Well, how many states allow it for a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old? The number of states that allow it for a 12-year-old are somewhere around. Uh, well, uh, I, I suppose that number is close to 10 or so. So that's, when, that's one reason why I would draw the line around 12 or so. If you look at, for example, so the, the ten tables, states will allow it for a 12-year-old. How many would allow it for a 13-year-old? Do you happen to know? 
at that point, we're getting up uh, to much more substantial numbers. I guess when we get up to 14, we're up to somewhere in the realm of 30. Is it taken into account when the, when the child is in the juvenile system initially, has to be moved to the adult system? Uh, is it judgment? Is, is there any cutoff on the, on the transfer? Or is it, can, it, can a child be transferred to the adult system at any age? Well, that, I think, is the appropriate line in terms of thinking about what the minimum is here. Uh, the answer depends on the jurisdiction. In Alabama, 14 is the minimum. But that number is, compared to a lot of other jurisdictions, a little high. Uh, so if, you, if you're under 14, you can't be transferred out of the juvenile system? That's correct. In Alabama, if you're under 14, you can't be transferred out. Now, many other states, at age 13, you can be transferred in. Uh, in, er, you can be transferred into the adult system, uh, which is why there are a few 13-year-olds. So if Miller, Senate, Miller but, 13, he would get out when? When he's 21? In Alabama, uh, the juvenile justice system's jurisdiction terminates at, at 21, yes. So that's, that's why he's arguing that the legislatures don't focus on it. If, if you do a public opinion poll or just ask me, for example, or ask anyone, you say, the question is, should, at what age should juveniles be able to be transferred out of the juvenile system into the adult system? You might get one answer, maybe 14, maybe 15, maybe 12. But if you put the question, at what age should they be receiving a mandatory life without parole, the answer might be different. And, and his point is they never ask that question. They ask the first question, not the second. And that disturbs me enough to think that I can't think the answer to this question that I asked you uh, just relies on public opinion polls or even just the number of states. I, I'm not sure about it. But that's why I want to hear your response, because it sounds like we're arguing between whether it should be 13, 12, or 14 uh, in, in terms of an absolute cutoff. So, so, so how do I approach that? I'm asking you for help on that one. I know you have a side in this. But I, I said, well, we're talking about 14, and we have all this scientific literature and so forth. Justice Breyer, the reason why it's fair to infer that legislatures would have concluded that a 14-year-old, for example, in Alabama would be subject to a mandatory life without parole sentence is precisely because it's mandatory. Surely the legislatures understood uh, that when they were transferring persons who committed crimes like aggravated murder that were well within the heartland of the crimes for which the transfer statutes were intended, those offenders would be subject to the minimum sentences at least. It's quite another thing to say, well, the, the legislature might have enacted a statute providing for transfer for, for a 14-year-old and for a non-homicide crime. They might have assumed that the person would get less than the maximum in terms of life without parole. But surely the legislators understood that those offenders would at least get the minimum. Uh, and the reason why the line is more safely drawn at 13 or 12 is because if you look at, for example, the tables uh, from the Department of Justice reports that both sides and the amici have cited listing uh, the transfer ages, uh, by and large, uh, the number seems to cut off at 12 or so. Uh, or, and, and 12 would be on the very bottom end of the range. And if I were a defense attorney, I'd be arguing much harder for a line at 13 than 12. I imagine if I were a defense attorney, I'd be arguing for an even higher line than that. Uh, but the point is that uh, if we're going to judge this in terms, in terms of obje objective indicia of what society has decided, that seems to be the line that society has drawn. In, that in, line the, is, in the petitioner's the idea of deterrence kind of drops by the wayside. Um, have there been any studies that um, 
show that, 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 that there is a deterrence value? I remember in, in Roper, there was actually discussion among the, the young people before they committed the crime as to whether or not they could get the penalty was actually right there in the record. Uh, does the does state rely on the deterrence uh, component of, of the punishment here? Justice Kennedy, we think that deterrence is in the mix, but it's certainly not the primary uh, goal that the, these statutes serve. Is it retribution? Retribution, Justice Kennedy, would be the primary goal, uh, bringing society's retributive force to bear on those who commit the but worst ret- sort of Retribution, of course, is related to personal culpability. We said that in Tyson's, and that loops back into the minor problem. Uh, that's exactly right, Justice Kennedy. But I think one point on which Mr. Miller and the State fundamentally disagree here is what we can conclude about a juvenile's culpability when the juvenile has committed aggravated murder. Uh, the reason why Graham came out as it did, the reason why life without parole was not permissible, uh, was because Graham himself had not committed murder. Uh, the Court there said that meant that Graham's culpability was twice diminished, once because he was a juvenile and once because he had not committed murder. Well, here we have the hypothetical from Graham where the, the, the one level of diminishment is, is gone. And Miller has — Miller's, Miller's uh, entitled to a one-level diminishment because of his juvenile status, but he's not entitled to that second level of diminishment, which is what he's seeking here. Are, are you aware of any statistics that give us some quantitative s- s- sense as to how many uh, juveniles after years and years of prison uh, show significant rehabilitation? Do, do we know anything about that? Justice Kennedy, I know uh, of no statistics on that particular front. I imagine that uh, some vignettes could be told about success stories and some vignettes could be told about uh, stories that were not success stories. Do you have any reason to think that juveniles are any better than anyone else as far as uh, learning from prison is concerned? I mean, recidivism is a big problem, isn't it? People who've been to prison go out and commit the same crimes again, don't they? That's exactly right, Justice. any reason to think that the juveniles are, are any different? Justice Scalia, I haven't seen any studies that would suggest yeah. that uh, juveniles do better, uh, particularly when they're subjected to the sorts of crimes that I think everyone would have — or the, the sorts of offenses, let me say, uh, that I think everyone would agree the Constitution would have to permit a sentence of, say, 40 years uh, minimum or the like. Uh, so I, I just don't I, — I think society — society's primary goal here, the government's primary goal here is — uh, expressing the retributive judgment about the wrongfulness of murder and why it's different from non-homicide. But I think governments are quite legitimate and quite reasonable when they also say that they don't want to roll the dice on convicted murderers. Society acts with particular revulsion when a convicted murderer uh, commits a crime again. And even if, and even if uh, that difference in terms of recidivism is no different, uh, or even if the possibility for recidivism is no different, the fact that uh, the person committed a murder once and might commit a murder again is reason enough or for legislatures to be hesitant to allow for parole in these circumstances. uh, uh, With respect to the penological purposes, uh, there's also an important purpose here with respect to the unique factors and the unique circumstances that murder victims and their families face. I think a lot of people uh, hear about life without parole sentences, and if they uh, oppose them on political grounds or policy-based grounds, one of their sort of pragmatic responses is, well, what's the cost to all this? Uh, why not just let these guys get their parole hearings, give them that hope, and likely they won't get parole anyway. Uh, and there's really no cost to society, at least in allowing that process to occur. But the cost is to the victims and their families who have to endure uh, what are often very painful uh, hearings and parole hearings. And when those come up on a frequent basis, uh, that sort of uh, re-traumatization process is something that governments can legitimately take into account when they decide that for aggravated murder — and 
not for other crimes, but for aggravated murder, uh, life without parole sentences, an appropriate sentence. Uh, on the moral culpability point, uh, there would be some anomalies created by the rule that Miller is seeking here. Uh, Miller's asking uh, the Court to effectively hold him uh, in the same place in terms of his moral culpability uh, as uh, the defendant in Graham. Uh, in other words, Graham uh, can only get life with, life with parole because of his reduced moral culpability, uh, and Miller is saying he should only get life with parole because of his reduced culpability. So that would mean one of two things. Either the Eighth Amendment would put a murderer uh, on the same moral level uh, as someone who committed a non-homicide gra- cr- crime, as in Graham, uh, or uh, Graham himself would be back in this court or a court of another uh, jurisdiction, arguing that because Graham held that Graham himself had uh, categorically less culpability than someone like Mil- Miller, then, Mil- then Graham himself is entitled to a lesser punishment than the one uh, that uh, Miller, well, in well, fact, received. I mean, if you look at those two cases and you look at the individuals, the child's actions in the two cases, they really are remarkably similar. They're sort of of a piece. Don't you agree? I mean, how, how is it that the child's actions in this case were any different from that in Graham? Justice Kagan, I think that uh, Miller's actions were dramatically different from uh, Graham's actions, in part because uh, Miller intended to kill uh, this victim and killed the victim in uh, a rather gruesome way. Uh, So there's not an element of luck here in terms of the fact that, oh, well, Graham was simply uh, lucky that he didn't uh, commit. And that's in the the Jackson case. In the Jackson case, the crime was very similar to — I'm sorry. Justice Ginsburg is, of course, right. uh, well, I, I defer to my colleague from Arkansas in terms of the distinctions between Jackson uh, uh, and uh, Graham, but certainly with respect to Miller's crime, uh, his, his moral culpability is greater, and the law should recognize that. If the judge were to determine <laughs> under uh, a rule that the sentence can't be mandatory whether or not life should be imposed, what would be the sorts of factors that he would look at, or do you think that those are just uh, — too, in, too ineffable, too, too imprecise to be considered? Well, Justice Kennedy, I think it certainly would be possible to have a regime under which uh, a judge considered mitigating circumstances uh, in a case like this. I mean, many jurisdictions have reasonably opted for that route uh, rather than the one that Alabama and 26 other jurisdictions there, there have. Are there standard sorts of mitigating circumstances that we see in capital cases, you think? Absolutely. I think that's exactly what would happen. And you would have arguments about certain murders being worse than others and uh, — Mr. Miller would have an opportunity to argue uh, about other mitigating circumstances relating to his background and the like, as, as he's argued in his reply brief here. But at the same time, it's, it's reasonable for legislatures to conclude that they're going to draw a line in the sand with respect to aggravated murder such that, uh, as, a, as a floor in terms of the appropriate punishment, the defendant is going to get, uh, at, at the very least, life without parole, a, a punishment that's no doubt severe, uh, but one that is uh, less severe than the impact the crime has had on society. Uh, And for those reasons, we'd ask the Court to affirm. Thank you, Mr. Neiman. Mr. Stevenson, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I I just want to make clear that the rule we seek would not require states uh, to impose the same sentence on uh, uh, juveniles convicted of homicides and juveniles convicted of non-homicides. The states would be free to do that if they chose to. Uh, but they could certainly create a regime where it's life with parole, where there are different ages for eligibility. In fact, the state of Nevada uh, makes you eligible for parole after 15 years if the crime is a non-homicide, uh, 20 years if it's a homicide. The states would still have a great deal of flexibility to create, consistent with this Court's rule, 
uh, a regime that makes these distinctions. Justice Kennedy, I did want to point uh, direct your attention to two amicus briefs that I think respond to two of the questions you've raised. There is an amicus brief submitted by criminologists in this case that looks specifically at the question of deterrence. And what they found is that life without parole has not had any measurable deterrent effect. The states that don't put uh, juveniles, don't subject children to life without parole, have actually experienced the same level of decrease in violent crime and homicide as the states that do. And, in fact, in some of those jurisdictions, uh, the decrease is even more significant. I also want to address your question, Justice Scalia. There is — there are some studies that have established that juveniles are uh, more likely or less likely to recidivate uh, after an intervention than adults. Generally speaking, homicide offenders are categorically less likely to recidivate than many non-homicide offenders. Drug offenders and property crime offenders are much more likely to recidivate than, than homicide offenders. And so there's a lot to support that a judgment rooted in these penological concerns would be well supported here. I also want to return, uh, uh, Justice Breyer, uh, to your question. Um, Mr. Diamond has argued that that we can read into these statutes a commitment to imposing life without parole at a particular age, and that age is the age of transfer. I just want to highlight that the two states with the largest populations of juveniles serving life without parole, by a huge margin, are Pennsylvania and Michigan, neither of which has uh, a minimum age. That means in those states a child of any age can be subject to a mandatory sentence of life without parole. It's simply not true, true that we can read into those statutes in those jurisdictions any kind of conscious commitment to thinking about age. The other point I want to You think the legislators in Pennsylvania and Michigan don't understand what their I, laws I, provide? I, I, I think that they haven't thought about it. Yes, I do think that. I mean, for example, this goes to the next point I was about to make. Uh, my colleague keeps talking about aggravated murder. In the state of Pennsylvania, it's not just aggravated murder that subjects you to a mandatory life without parole. If you're convicted of second-degree murder, no intent, diminish, it's still mandatory life without parole. We have 14-year-old children, and, th- and again, that's the largest cohort in our group, uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, convicted of clearly unintentional killings that have been subject to mandatory life without parole. South Dakota does the same thing. I think where there is no minimum age, and when you have that kind of regime, I cannot — I don't think we can conclude that they've thought about — What, if, yes, they, what if they do? I mean, what if uh, after our decision or even after the argument, states go back and say, look, the decision is based on the fact that they don't think we know our law, that we haven't thought about it, so let's have a hearing about it, and then we vote that, yes, there should be — no, there should not be a minimum age. We think at 16, whatever age they, they do. Then does the constitutional rule change? Yeah. Uh, Once we get 30 states saying, look, we've thought about it and this is our answer, then whether the Eighth Amendment prohibits it or not changes? Uh, it, no. I, I don't think it changes because uh, there is an age at which this Court is obligated under the Eighth Amendment to say a sentence of this sort, a permanent judgment, that lifelong incarceration is, is required. Well, right. But one of the things we take into account is societal consensus. And you say we should ignore the 30-whatever-it-is states that allow this because they didn't really think about it. Well, so I'm postulating, well, sure. let's make — let's see if they have thought about it. Yeah. Well, the, in, in that regard, just, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think that we do have 13 states that have thought about it that have expressly looked at this question of what the minimum age should be. And in 12 of those 13 states, they have set the age above 14. Most of those states have set the age at 18. So if that's the Court's lens, then I think that would support the kind of rule that we're seeking here. What if instead of striking down the laws in these states, why don't we just require the state legislatures to think about it, all right, and and, and then see how many think about it and, and 
come up with, uh, you know, something that agrees with you or doesn't agree with you. Well, I, I think it's important. Wouldn't that be more democratic somehow? It, it might be more democratic, but I, I don't think it would be consistent with the constitutional obligation this Court has to protect people who are vulnerable from excessive punishment. And this is a cohort that we contend is the most vulnerable and should be shielded from this excessive punishment. Thank you, Mr. Stevenson. Mr. Nyman, the case is submitted.